You're going to love this. Just love it. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, but we've put together some of our most important recent interviews that you may have missed. A best of the Bradcast, or as we like to call it, Bradcast Recounted. Coming up on today's program, constitutional law and impeachment expert Ron Fine, legal director of the nonprofit government accountability group Free Speech for People, dismantles Senate Republicans' false and disingenuous attempts to circumvent the unprecedented second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump, and specific actions that can be taken to prevent the former president from criming again, and why ensuring accountability and consequences today are crucial to preserve our Democratic Republic for tomorrow. But first, Brad's conversation with gerrymandering expert David Daly, senior fellow at FairVote.org, on the new push in Republican-controlled state legislatures to exploit Trump's absurdly false claims about voter fraud in the 2020 election to justify enacting a tsunami of new restrictions on voting at the state level and new ways to game the Electoral College vote. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Yes, it do. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. As David Daly writes this week at Boston Globe, sometimes the threat to democracy takes the form of a violent mob incited by the president himself ransacking the halls of government, invading the floors of the U.S. House and Senate, and disrupting the constitutionally mandated electoral college count. Other times, democracy can be subverted through the legal and political process by lawmakers who assert groundless claims of voter fraud and stolen elections, support lawsuits that seek to nullify legitimate election results, and back efforts in Congress not to certify electors from Arizona and Pennsylvania when the people's will differs from their own. Amped up by lies about voter fraud and urged by their leaders to stop the steal, Daily writes, the first mob staged a bloody insurrection in which five people died. The second mob, 139 Republican members of the U.S. House, a majority of the caucus, filed past bullet holes and broken glass and voted to endorse the big lie that those states somehow had been stolen from Donald Trump. Glass can be replaced, security enhanced, he writes, but what if the more dangerous threat to our nation comes from the mob that would legally subvert free and fair elections? Even as the nation condemns the violent rioters, that other mob, that respectable one, has stayed busy working to remake electoral rules to their advantage in legislatures nationwide. 
After fueling a phony narrative around voter fraud, many Republican legislatures are orchestrating real suppression techniques that will disproportionately affect young and minority voters. Even before Joe Biden had been inaugurated, Republican-controlled state legislatures were seeking to capitalize on the misinformation that they sowed as justification for rigorous new voter ID restrictions, new limitations on mail voting, and other unnecessary barriers to the ballot box, all of which will reverberate in their favor, naturally, in 2022 and 2024, Daly argues. So, Democrats in the U.S. House and Senate have a massive proposal to restore at least some measure of ethics and campaign finance reform and election integrity to federal elections. It's called H.R. 1, the For the People Act, the real fight for election integrity, or in the case of the GOP's long and continuing efforts against election integrity. More often, that happens at the state level where GOP gerrymandered and dominated state legislators are getting back to work following the 2020 election and its ensuing deadly Trump fomented U.S. Capitol riot. They're getting back to work to move legislation through state capitals in hopes of making voting more difficult, at least for some, preying on the confusion of millions of voters who have been duped into believing massive voter fraud by Democrats somehow flipped the results of the 2020 election from Trump to Biden last November. Joining us now is someone who has been attempting to unrig the ballot box and the electoral process for years. In fact, his latest book is called Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. His previous book on Red Map, the GOP's long and wildly successful state gerrymandering scheme, has a name that I cannot say on FCC radio, so we just call it Rat Flipped. The true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. David Daly is the former editor-in-chief of Salon, now a senior fellow at FairVote.org, where he continues the most important fight of all in this nation, the one for free and fair elections for all. Oh, David Daly, welcome back, sir, to the broadcast for your first time in the Biden era, where all is now perfectly fine again. We fixed everything. It's good to be back, Brad. How are you? Good to have you. Well, you know, if you're a Republican, you would argue that, uh, yes, you did fix everything, David. Um, <laughs> in any event, as, as noted, uh, the GOP at the state level is opportunistically beginning to use Trump's lies about voter fraud to their advantage, though in truth... All Donald Trump did was, you know, take years of GOP lies about voter fraud that they were already putting out there and giving it a national platform. So I want to run through some of the specific efforts that you document in your Boston Globe piece that are now happening at the state level to make voting harder following 2020. But quickly, I want to get your thoughts on another sort of gerrymandering process, Dave. The, uh, the U.S. Senate as our friend uh, Ari Berman of Mother Jones notes on Twitter, is a remarkably undemocratic body. Fifteen states with 38 million people elect 30 GOP senators, while California, which by itself has 40 million people, while we just get two senators, they're both Democratic right now, uh, to represent us, uh, he notes that by 2040, 30 percent of America will elect 70 senators, while 70 percent of America 
will elect just 30 senators. So already, Senate Democrats represent 41 million more Americans than the GOP does in the Senate, but it's still a 50-50 body, and Mitch McConnell wants 21 small state GOP senators representing less than a quarter of the population to be able to block laws supported by huge majorities of Americans with the filibuster. Tell me, if you can, how does that logjam, that gerrymandering ever get corrected, no matter what is done at the ballot box? That's the original gerrymander in so many ways. The U.S. Senate, which is weighted so viciously towards small states, in a way that the founders, if they saw now, would be truly, truly horrified by. You've, you've rattled off the same numbers I would, that you've got a 50-50 body, and yet those 50 Democratic senators are representing about 41.5 million more people. Mm-hmm. And when you add into that the small state bias of the Electoral College, when you add into that the advantage that that bias has given Republicans in selecting Supreme Court justices, five of these nine conservative justices on the court selected by a president that lost the popular vote, when you then factor in the advantages that the Republicans have with gerrymandering and geography, and then it's all the way down from the U.S. House to the state legislative level, Mm -hmm. we are looking at an epidemic of Republican minority rule in this country. What can we do about the structure of the Senate? Uh, I mean, I think as much as we are worried about the House in 2022 and redistricting, the real long-term problem indeed is this bias in the Senate. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a terrific proposal by a professor at the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. that would give every state one U.S. senator and then a lot the other 50 proportionately, Mm -hmm. uh, which is is constitutional according to the way he lays it out. Um, I think that we have to think about um, perhaps de-emphasizing the importance of the Senate and making it more of a House of Lords in Mm -hmm. some ways, almost a ceremonial uh, body, and increase the size and the proportionality of the U.S. House. But I think that there's also, you know, another way of of looking at this. Maybe we simply need, as progressives, to move people to all of these other states and think much more (laughs) creatively, right? I mean, what what if Tom Steyer or Michael Bloomberg, instead of lighting hundreds of millions of dollars on fire Mm -hmm. with ego-driven presidential campaigns, built a new Silicon Valley somewhere at the, you know, close to the four corners of of Iowa and Nebraska and South Dakota. Mm. You know, we're a new university. What if we created a magnificent new research university in Wyoming and paid people to go there, and we start to think about affecting the Democrats' geography problem, wow. which in many ways is just as big as the gerrymandering Well, I, I, no one will ever uh, fault you for not thinking big, Dave Daly. Because, uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess if that's what it takes, I mean, do I have to leave California? I kind of like it here. 
But I hear you. And, you know, as you say, it's uh, the, the founding uh, father's, uh, you know, original gerrymandering sin. It's made even worse, of course, with the filibuster, where you need 60 votes to pass anything in the Senate. I want to make clear, in case people are under the wrong impression, the filibuster is not in the Constitution. There is no reason that the Senate can't be a a majority up or down vote body. That's just, uh, you know, an attempt to make things work even slower. And of course, if you're a Republican, you just do away with the filibuster whenever you want to when it you know comes to Supreme Court justices and so forth. But you threaten the Democrats uh, that you won't let them do anything if they get rid of the leg- uh, the filibuster for legislative uh, matters. Anyway, we're going to obviously keep talking about that one for a while. But let's jump into some of the state legislation that you sort of set an alarm off about in your piece at Boston Globe this week, uh, beginning with efforts in Wisconsin, Michigan and New Hampshire, where, as you note, Republican legislators have proposed reallocating their state's electoral votes for the winner of each congressional district with the other two electors, uh, the two that they get for their two uh, senators, going to the statewide popular vote winner. Now, two states already do something like that, Nebraska and Maine. It certainly sounds like a more egalitarian, small-D, democratic way to do it than the winner-take-all process for electors that we have in most states right now. So what are you concerned about there, David? Well, if every state awarded electors proportionately, that would be fine. But when you start looking at states like New Hampshire that have gone blue in seven of the last eight elections, and you start talking about siphoning votes off there, that, I think, is worth ringing bells about. Um, The proposal in Wisconsin that a legislator just filed today is Mm -hmm. even worse than the one that I wrote about in the Globe. Mm. What this legislator wants to do is not only award the electoral college votes by district, But he wants to give the extra two for the senator Mm -hmm. to the candidate who wins the most congressional districts. (laughs) So by that math, Joe Biden wins the state of Wisconsin in its popular vote. Uh But Donald Trump would have gotten eight of the ten electoral votes. Now, is all of that because of the gerrymandering in states like Wisconsin? In other words, if we did away uh, with the gerrymandering, if we actually had fair congressional districts, And I guess, as you say, you know, if we did this in all 50 states, would we end up with something that more uh, closely represented a popular, small-D Democratic vote? You know, I've got an even better idea. How about if we give every single person in the country an electoral vote? We could call it, I don't know, (laughs) let's be crazy. We could call it a vote. (laughs) And then we could add them all up. And the person who has the most could be the winner. Well, work with me here. I know it's a well, crazy idea. No, I hear, work with me. I hear you. But the, the thing is, the, the folks in Wisconsin and Michigan and New Hampshire who, who want to see reform, who feel that it's not a small-D democratic enough system for them, obviously they can't uh, change it on the national level, so they're working on the state level. Uh, <laughs> I mean, That's, well. I, yes, I love the benefit of the doubt that gives them. Um, if we want move to reform this system, we have to move to reform the entire system. Mm. Um, And I think that there are ways to do that. We cannot simply allow Republican gerrymandered state legislatures, like the ones in Michigan and Wisconsin, to then turn around and gerrymander the Electoral College. What that does is it just enhances 
the importance of gerrymandering. It gives the Republicans who have already locked themselves into all of these state legislatures even more power, and it drives home just how crucial this is. Mm-hmm. We're talking about state legislative districts that have been rewired in such a way that it could now take 80% of the electoral college votes from a swing state and award them to the loser of the popular vote. That's what gerrymandering does. Now, Wisconsin and Michigan both have uh, Democratic governors, so in theory, the, uh, their, those governors in those states would be able to block this sort of plan unless the Republicans decide to play the, uh, the constitutional card where they want to argue that only legislatures can make laws and the governor has nothing to do with it, and they may try to do that, I suspect. Uh, New Hampshire, on the other hand, has a Republican governor. He might go along with this. Are you concerned that the, the proposals in any of these three states could actually come to pass? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at the constitutional hardball that the Republicans have been playing for the last decade plus, it, you would have to be naive to think that they would not go ahead and make a move like this. Mm. Now, there are currently Democratic governors in Wisconsin and Michigan. Mm-hmm. That does not mean that there will be Democratic governors mm-hmm. there forever. Yep. Uh, the Democratic governor in Wisconsin was elected very narrowly in 2018. He will be up for re-election in 2022. If Democrats lose one statewide election in a competitive swing state that goes back and forth, um, as elections can and should do, they could then force through this change in time for the 2024 election. Mm. Uh, You know, the, the Democratic governor in Michigan you had a militia there that wanted to kidnap and execute her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah, this, it, is, uh, this is how close it is in yeah, I know. And it sort of drives me crazy because <clears throat> this uh, those elections you mentioned coming up in 2022, they're off year elections. Democrats don't tend to turn out for off year elections in the same way that Republicans do, particularly when there is a, uh, a Democrat in the White House. And I remember thinking back in 2010, oh, it's going to be a big year. Democrats are going to understand that it's a, a you know, a, 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 a redistricting year. So they're going to turn out in 2010. Well, apparently the message did not get out to the Democrats. And I wonder um, if the message will if Democrats will get the message out to the voters this time that, yes, showing up in 2022 is also going to be important. All right. Let me uh, let's fly through a, a few more of these states here. Georgia legislators after that state narrowly flipped from red to blue for the first time in decades in the presidential race in November. And then both U.S. senators uh, races went Democratic this month. Georgia uh, Republicans want to do away with no excuse mail-in voting and require photo absentee for absentee voters and put an end to drop boxes. Is there any reason for any of those measures beyond pure and simple attempts at voter suppression at this point in Georgia? No. Absolutely not. It's it's pure and simple voter suppression. And can you explain the reason that Republicans are freaked out by secure absentee ballot drop boxes, but that they are perfectly fine with mailboxes, which force the ballots to then go through many more hands before they eventually get to the county to be counted, if they ever do. I mean, what is well, because the... Because they can... Yeah? Because what's, what's they the can slow down reason? the mail, right? <laughs> Yeah, they can slow um, down the mail, but what is their ostensible reason? What are they claiming is, is wrong with drop boxes? You know, I don't think they're in love 
with mail-in voting or allowing the, the post office as drop boxes either. Uh, you know, there is something inside the heart of the Republican Party that wants voting in 2020 to be exactly as it was in, in 1882, right? <laughs> right. Um, it's on a Tuesday because that's a convenient day for farmers. Mm-hmm. And it's, between, it's between, you know, the hours of 8 and 8 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't live that way anymore. We have adjusted the rules of modern society to match modern times. And there are more of us. So we need to do different kinds of voting. Um, you know, there have been studies study after study about this, there is no voter fraud problem. The creation of this myth of voter fraud is one of the things Republicans have done really well mm-hmm. over the course of the last uh, several decades. Yeah. Uh, and it's simply not true. And they use this big lie in order to then justify all of these other suppressive measures yeah. that just keep putting little barriers between people and the ballot box. And And eventually, you stack enough of them up, and it skims votes away, especially in these states where 10, 11, 12,000 votes makes all the difference to the presidential room. Yeah, and of course, now they have a a, a larger excuse than ever for the next, I don't know how many years, they're going to be saying, well, people are concerned they lost confidence after the 2020 election. Well, of course they lost confidence. They were told that they should lose confidence. They were told that there was fraud that didn't exist uh, to uh, an extent that we have never seen before from the party, from the, you know, from the White House itself making those claims. Uh, Now, intentional. Yeah, it is. Uh, Now, Pennsylvania Republicans, uh, after adopting a bipartisan measure to allow no excuse absentee voting, they were all very proud of it for the first time ever at the end of 2019. It worked very well in 2020. Uh, Thankfully, it came in just in time, uh, given the need for widespread mail-in voting during the pandemic. Well, now you report the Republicans want to roll back that legislation. Um, Thankfully, they have a Democratic governor right now who I suspect would block that correct. But do do you have the same concerns about, uh, well, he's not going to be there forever? I do. You, I mean, Pennsylvania, like Wisconsin, like Michigan, is a state that is elected. Democratic governors and Republican governors. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a close, it's a close state. Um, and what the legislature is doing there now, on two fronts. Uh, for, you know, first on the front of trying to roll back a lot of these mail-in and absentee voting reforms mm-hmm. that worked really well mm-hmm. in 2020 in driving turnout and making it easier to vote in the middle of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But they are also attempting to gerrymander the state supreme court which is currently elected statewide. Mm -hmm. And what Republicans have done is they have put forth a constitutional amendment that will be voted on in a low-turnout May election Mm. to district state Supreme Court justices. Mm. And in a state like Pennsylvania, in which most of the Democratic voters are concentrated in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, we joke about Pennsylvania being Philadelphia and Pittsburgh with Alabama in the middle. Right. You've got a lot of red in the middle of the state and these two sort of bright blue sections at opposite ends. Mm -hmm. That would give Republicans the ability to take an unfair, rigged advantage on the state Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And that is the state Supreme Court that stood up 
to the president when he tried to overturn the election results there. Mm -hmm. That is also the state Supreme Court that overturned the Republicans' gerrymandered congressional map that for the first three cycles of last decade handed Republicans 13 of the state's 18 congressional seats, Mm -hmm. even when they won fewer votes. They would get 70% of the seats with about 47, 48 percent of the vote. And this is a case where they're gerrymandering the Supreme Court, where it's it's going to be a ballot measure, a constitutional measure, so I guess it cannot be stopped, even if they have a Democratic governor in office. I'm going to point folks towards your uh, piece at Boston Globe to check out what Republicans are now trying to do in Minnesota and, of course, down in Texas, where they are always trying to make it harder to vote, which I think is why they have the uh, either the second lowest or the lowest turnout rate in the country. That is no uh, accident either. That is by design as well. But uh, since I've got just a minute or so left here, uh, David Daly, you know, after playing defense on voting rights against all of these things that we're talking about here, Democrats are at least trying to get on the offensive a little bit. They uh, Democrats now, both in the House and Senate, have a bill called For the People Act. Uh, it provides a lot of long overdue reforms for uh, for voting and fair elections, ending the dominance of big money and, and dark money in politics, reinforcing disclosure and ethics laws uh, for members of Congress. There's a lot in that bill. It's a really huge bill, which probably means it has no chance to pass. But I'm just being negative here. So for now, I don't have time to go through it. But is there anything in particular in that bill that jumps out at you that you like or that you don't like? And how, in any event, is any of it supposed to get through so long as the Senate filibuster exists requiring 60 votes to pass anything? Uh Boy, there is a lot of great stuff in this bill. Independent commissions for congressional redistricting Mm. mandated Mm -hmm. around the country, automatic voter registration, online voter registration, an end to felony disenfranchisement, an end to voter purges, all kinds of terrific things in this bill. Democrats have got to go big and they've got to go fast because we've just identified all of these huge structural and geographical barriers that make it really, really rare and surprising for them to have control of all three branches yep. at once. Well, they got to go big, they, they got to go fast. Go now, but they it, might not have this chance again. You, well, you say go now, and by the way, I was happy to see Chuck Schumer is saying exactly the same things. Uh, we need to go bold, we need to go quickly, that's all good, yeah. but if you have a filibuster, none of this is going to get passed in this H.R. Democrats, Democrats have got to blow up the filibuster in mm. order to do this, because if they don't the advantages that the Republicans are going to have both mm-hmm. on the Senate map and on a redistricted House map in 2022, they might not see either chamber again for the rest of the decade. And if all of these electoral college shenanigans get pulled off in state legislatures at the same time, you're going to see a big change in the White House map as well. They've got to use this opportunity while they have it, no matter what the cost. You know, I have a feeling we're going to be ending a lot of conversations over the next few weeks with the words, yeah, but Joe Manchin in West Virginia and Kirsten Cinema in Arizona. They've got to want something, right? What do they want? Give it to them. <laughs> there you go. And, uh, you know, maybe what they want is something that they cannot have because the Republicans 
are holding it up with a filibuster, and maybe they'll come around and see the light as well. David Daly, always great speaking with you, even greater speaking with you in the uh, Joe Biden era. <sighs> We're all a little, a little bit less uh, freaked out. So David Daly, former editor-in-chief at Salon, now a senior fellow at fairvote.org. You can find him on the Twitters at DaveDaly3, that's the number three, and of course at fairvote.org. And we will link to his Boston Globe uh, op-ed, Two Mobs Stormed the Capitol, One in MAGA Hats, The Other in Expensive Suits. Dave Daly, always great speaking with you, my friend. Hope to do it again soon. Anytime, Brad. Thank you, brother. Much more on that second mob in expensive suits coming up next on Bradcast Recounted. Brad's conversation with constitutional law and impeachment expert Ron Fine on the historic second impeachment of Donald Trump to hold him accountable for inciting the deadly, seditious January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol and Republicans' ongoing efforts to undermine both the impeachment trial and President Biden's agenda. You're listening to Bradcast Recounted. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. To make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. You're listening to Bradcast Recounted. Catch me if you can. Try and catch me if you can. <laughs> Working on it. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. As we go to air, incredibly enough, it has been only three weeks to the day since the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol by a mob of Donald Trump MAGA supporters following a rally at the White House in which the then-president repeatedly lied about having won the 2020 election, lied about massive voter fraud that did not exist, and instructed and, yes, encouraged his supporters to parade down Pennsylvania Avenue to the U.S. Capitol and, quote, fight like hell to stop what he had been falsely characterizing for weeks as a stolen election. Those supporters then did as they were encouraged by the President of the United States to do. They broke into the Capitol in an attempted insurrection, calling for the hanging of the Vice President and stopping the official counting of Electoral College votes dead in its tracks for hours, sending lawmakers fleeing into secure locations and leaving at least five people dead, including a Capitol Police officer, 
who was left dead in that murderous rampage. Yes, that was just three weeks ago. Seems like forever ago, but it was this month. Since then, more than 100 Trump supporters have been arrested and charged in the attack, with many more such cases and charges promised in the days ahead by the FBI. One week later after that attack, one week later to the day, the president of the United States was impeached in the U.S. House on a single article for incitement of insurrection for his role in the attempt to reverse a legitimate presidential election in the quickest impeachment proceeding in U.S. history, marking the first time that a president has been impeached twice during his presidency. That was just two weeks ago. One week later to the day, the new president, Joe Biden, was sworn into office as scheduled and as the American people voted, according to all available evidence. And here we are now, just one more week later to the day, after the Republican majority leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, refused to convene the Senate to hold an impeachment trial in the week before Joe Biden's inauguration. Now, with the article of impeachment against the disgraced former president delivered to the now democratically controlled U.S. Senate to begin Donald Trump's historic second impeachment trial, the first act of that trial after senators were sworn in as impartial jurists, Republicans in the U.S. Senate, some of whom are blamed themselves with helping to incite the murderous attack, called a vote on Tuesday to simply dismiss the entire affair, describing it as unconstitutional. After all, since the president was no longer in office following Mitch McConnell's refusal to convene the Senate for a trial before the end of his term, now that he's out, well, the whole thing is unconstitutional, can't happen. The resolution uh, was put forward by Kentucky Republican Rand Paul, but it was voted down 55 to 45 with all Democrats and just five Republicans voting against it. McConnell, who last week noted on the floor of the Senate that Trump, quote, provoked the attack on the U.S. Capitol, also voted in favor of dismissing the, the trial entirely as unconstitutional. Enforcing the vote, Senator Paul charged it was unconstitutional to hold an impeachment trial of a former president, asserting, quote, Private citizens don't get impeached. Impeachment is for removal from office, and the accused here has already left office, calling the trial deranged and vindictive. His remarks echoed a number of his recent tweets on the matter, like this one, and see if you can spot what is wrong with this tweet. He said, quote, If the accused is no longer president, where is the constitutional power to impeach him? I bet my next guest can figure out what's wrong with that tweet and with Paul's claims on the Senate floor that private citizens don't get impeached. Joining us now is Ron Fine, co-author with our friends Ben Clements and John Bonifaz, constitutional law experts all, of the 2018 book The Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump. Ron is also legal director at freespeechforpeople.org a nonprofit, nonpartisan government accountability group challenging big money and politics, corruption at the highest levels of our government, and fighting for free and fair elections. Oh, Ron Fine, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. It is a pleasure to be back with you. 
So uh, Ron Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Rand Paul, uh, who has long touted himself, Ron, as a, uh, a champion of the U.S. Constitution, a so-called originalist, a textualist. He takes the words of the Constitution very literally as written, says that a former president, now a private citizen, cannot be impeached. That would therefore be unconstitutional. Now, I'm no constitutional law expert, such as yourself, Ron, but I'm pretty sure even I can spot the flaw in that argument. Can you? Well, the obvious flaw, of course, is that Trump was impeached while he was president. Ding, ding, uh, ding, ding, then, ding, ding, yes. <laughs> and then McConnell uh, stalled the process of the Senate trial by refusing to allow it to be held until Trump was already uh, out of office. But the, the larger issue is that uh, former public officials can be impeached uh, and undergo Senate trial, even if the impeachment occurs after they've left office. And we know that because Congress has done it before and, and explicitly considered that exact question. So this isn't even a new issue. So what is there? I mean, do they even have an ostensible argument to make? After all, 45 Republicans uh, agreed with them. What, what is the basis for their claim? Or is it just a completely false basis that they're making up that they should know better, but that they don't care? Well, first of all, I, I do want to give credit to the five Republicans who did not uh, agree with this silly argument, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and they deserve that credit. We, we'll see how they vote at the end of the trial, but at least they uh, didn't join in this foolishness. It's an argument that um, really has no basis in either the text of the Constitution or in its history. Um, the fact that it has no basis in the text of the Constitution, you can tell from the very fact that Rand Paul didn't quote any language from the Constitution <laughs> that would support it. Right. Um, you know, you can look up the Constitution online and you can look in, in vain to see something that supports what he's saying, uh, but there's nothing in the impeachment clauses of the Constitution that would limit it that way. And secondly, the history of the Constitution uh, makes clear um, not only the case that I, I alluded to earlier, where in the 19th century um, the uh, House impeached uh, a Secretary of War who had resigned to avoid impeachment, mm -hmm. and uh, it didn't work, um, and then he went through the Senate trial. But actually, even while the Constitution was being framed, uh, there mm -hmm. was a famous trial of the century um, mm -hmm. of impeachment happening in England that the framers were actually talking about while they were designing our Constitution, and that case involved somebody who'd been out of office for two years. <laughs> so the, the only uh, basis that they can have for saying uh, this argument is that it's never happened to a president before. And that's true. We, we haven't had that many presidents before, and we haven't had that many who have been impeached. Uh, but the fact that uh, it, it hasn't been done before is largely a function of the fact that m most presidents haven't tried to do something like this. And if their argument was allowed to go forth, then what it would say is that any president can do whatever they want in the last couple of weeks of their term, mm -hmm. because uh, you know by the time that they would get impeached and by the time the Senate could convene for a trial, they'd be out of office already. And because disqualification from future office is an important uh, remedy and mm -hmm. penalty for impeachment, uh, it is important to have that uh, hanging over the head of a, a president even in their last couple of weeks of office. Now, uh, and uh, the uh, five Republicans who did vote against this absurd resolution from Rand Paul uh, would be Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Pat Toomey. 
uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, this does suggest that there will not be a full 17 Republican senators willing to vote with the Democrats to impeach, at least according to all the reporting I've seen uh, since Tuesday's vote, which I should note is before the actual trial. That's not set to begin for two weeks uh, from now. And in theory, they were all sworn. All the senators swore in as, you know, promising to be impartial uh, uh, jurors here. So I'm not sure how anybody knows for sure how they'll vote after an actual trial. But just days ago, uh, Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell declared that Trump, quote, provoked the attack on the Capitol. That led some to believe that he might be in favor of uh, of convicting, which would potentially signal that other Senate Republicans could uh, vote that way as well. Yet on Tuesday, McConnell also voted in favor of Paul's uh, ridiculous resolution that the trial was unconstitutional because Trump was no longer in office. Uh, how, how do you read that? Should we make anything of that or should we all just shut up until after the trial? I think what's going on is that they can't defend Trump on the merits. Normally, in an impeachment trial, there's basically two questions for a senator to think through. One is, did he do it? Um, And there's not really any question um, as to what Trump did, because it all happened in public. Um, It doesn't require a lot of factual uh, investigation to find out what what he said and did. Uh, And the second question is, uh, is this a high crime or misdemeanor? And that is a question that only the Senate can decide in the end. Uh, or is it something minor and petty? Um, so, for example, in the Bill Clinton impeachment trial, um, evidently a lot of senators felt, uh, I don't think there was any serious doubt that he had lied under oath, but they felt that it was not so severe a uh, high crime and misdemeanor um, that would merit uh, conviction in the impeachment trial. Well, here, in this case, I don't think any of the uh, senators uh, want to go on record uh, saying that uh, incitement to insurrection to take over the U.S. Capitol um, and interfere with the vote counting uh, resulting in the sack of the Capitol and coming very close to hostage or assassination situations. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think any of them want to defend that. Uh, So what they're trying to do is weasel the way out of it by, uh, you know, using this uh, jurisdictional argument uh, claiming that they, they can't even hold the trial. Um, but I think it's important that if they want to claim that that wasn't a serious uh, a misconduct that, mm-hmm. that Trump did, uh, they should go on the record and own that, own their mm-hmm. their cowardice, because ultimately it is the cowardice, of, uh, I think, of uh, being afraid of their own voters to some extent. But if they're going to do that, then they shouldn't try and hide behind this silly technical argument. Now, uh, politically, some argued, Ron Fine, that uh, Trump's acquittal after his first impeachment trial showed that he was innocent of the charges and that the, uh, you know, then somehow that counterintuitively uh, sort of boosted Trump's standing. Now, you and, and John Bonifaz, Ben Clements wrote a book calling for impeachment. Uh, surely knowing uh, that the outcome could be what it was last uh, February and now could be again here. Is there a danger that a second acquittal will also sort of counterintuitively empower him and his supporters? Is that something that uh, politically uh, perhaps should have been considered by Democrats? Well, I don't think that his... uh is non-conviction by the Senate in the previous uh, impeachment trial empowered him that much because, of course, he lost the election. Mm. Um, and I think it, it did demonstrate through the process that uh, his, his misconduct was 
serious enough at least to, to require that trial. I think what's at issue here are, are two things. One is, of course, whether he should be disqualified from seeking future federal office. And the question is, if he did it once, is he likely to do it again? And mm-hmm. I, I think if he's uh, acquitted, there's going to be nothing stopping him from doing it again. Yep. But the second point of impeachment is also to draw a line in the sand for history and to say, this is not acceptable. I mean, even if Trump never wants to run for president again, uh, the United States Senate needs to say that this is not acceptable conduct from a president to try and turn uh, a, an army of his supporters uh, against the Congress and, and try and um, you know, overturn the election through violence. And if the Senate can't take that step, if the Senate can't draw that line in the sand, uh, then it really means that we've become a, a really fragile and, and weakened system, and I hope that's not the case. Uh, well, you note that it would it would require a second vote uh, to officially disqualify Trump from from uh, a future federal office. Uh, though that vote, as I understand it, requ- requires only a, a simple majority rather than two thirds to convict on impeachment. Can Congress simply? Vote on that, uh, skip over the uh, impeachment uh, trial itself, and simply vote on uh, barring Trump from future office? Uh, Not through the impeachment power. The uh, impeachment uh, power that they would need to first convict him by the two-thirds vote and then take that majority, simple majority vote to disqualify. Uh, I think everyone is assuming that if there are enough votes to convict by the higher standard, then there'll certainly be enough votes to take the disqualification now and, and if he doesn't uh, Ron if he doesn't pass uh, or doesn't get the two-thirds vote against him for impeachment then they cannot move on to that uh, additional vote to disqualify him from office not through impeachment there is a a wild card uh, in that there's a uh, provision of a different part of the Constitution mm-hmm. the 14th Amendment yeah. uh, and this is a provision that has only been used once since the Civil War um, and it's not totally clear exactly how to apply it, but mm-hmm. the 14th Amendment does say that if someone has engaged in rebellion or insurrection against the United States, then they are disqualified from holding future federal office. Yep. So there, there could be a way for Congress to use that, and that certainly would not require a, a two-thirds majority. But they would have to, as I understand it, pass a law of some sort, which would have to overcome a filibuster, I guess. It would have to get at least 60 votes somehow, pass a law that says it is illegal to do this as per the uh, 14th Amendment, Section 3. Uh, is, is that what would have to uh, ensue to, to, to enforce that? We think so, and the reason that I'm giving that very hesitant answer mm-hmm. is uh, the, the processes for impeachment are clear, and we've used them uh, a lot more, including recently, whereas this provision of the 14th Amendment was really only used for a couple of years right after the Civil War, and certainly never against a president. It was always used against uh, ex-Confederates, um, and uh, everybody knew exactly who they were talking about. Uh-huh. So there would definitely be some questions about it, but it is a power available to Congress, and I do think that if they were to pass a law and uh, perhaps need to be signed by the president, uh, then uh, it would apply, and then he would be uh, disqualified from seeking future federal office unless two-thirds of Congress removed that from him. There is another option, uh, since you mentioned the Clinton impeachment, there's another option that's uh, reportedly being pitched by Democratic Senators uh, Tim Kaine of Virginia and Susan Collins of Maine. 
that would be a censure resolution for Donald Trump. Now, I uh, the reason uh, the, the Clinton impeachment comes to mind is because I suspect many may have forgotten, but the the group MoveOn.org was originally formed as a coalition uh, following then Bill, uh, President Bill Clinton's transgressions in office to support the idea to, quote, censure and move on. That was how we got MoveOn.org. Now, is it wise, I guess, if everything else fails to uh, to at least pass a motion of censure so that I guess the country can uh, can move on if all else fails here? If all else fails, and, and it's only really worth considering this if all else fails, then a censure is better than nothing. But what the, the censure does is it expresses the sense that this is uh, bad uh, and, and, and shouldn't be done. What it doesn't do is in any way prevent him from doing it again. And, and that's the real danger that we face. And it is not uncommon in the history, certainly of 20th century dictators, for someone to uh, rise to power, then be out, and then come back the second time with a vengeance. Uh, and, and that is a real risk with Trump, that uh, he may come back uh, a second time. And, and his plans and his agenda and, uh, the, the, will, will be entirely based on wreaking vengeance on those who offended him. And, and he will have no limits uh, if, if Congress is not able to draw yep. that line now. And there was yet another limit that was taken away, uh, another long-running attempt to, to hold the uh, former president accountable. Uh, appears to have died a very quiet death this week as the uh, Republicans stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court quietly dismissed two lawsuits charging that Trump was in violation of the Constitution's emoluments clause that prevents a president from profiting from foreign governments, which the lawsuit claims that he did, since unlike previous presidents, he did not relinquish control of his businesses, like his hotels and, and such, while serving. Now, the court in their uh, ruling was you know offered without comment or dissent simply dismissed and wiped away the lower court opinion that actually went against Trump on this matter by finding the entire thing moot now that he is no longer in office i believe free speech for people had been a supporter of those lawsuits your response to the decision by the supremes this week to simply wipe everything away and say oh well it's too late to rule on it First thing we should say is that Congress should have impeached him for his violations of the emoluments clauses, which were apparent on the very first day that he took office mm -hmm. in 2017, because he didn't separate himself from his businesses. So he, he was uh, in violation from the minute he took the oath of office. And uh, Congress can impeach without needing to meet some of the technical standards that are applicable to lawsuits in federal court, which is what these lawsuits ended up being about. So the uh, cases went to appeal and then up to the Supreme Court on the technical question of standing, meaning do the particular plaintiffs who are bringing this lawsuit have the right to bring this particular lawsuit. So they, they didn't even really get to the point of discussing um, the, the facts of uh, the money coming into the Trump organization and, and where it was coming from, which foreign governments and, and so forth. Uh, because it got focused on standing, and the uh, Justice Department managed to stall and play out for time, um, and those lawsuits lasted basically the entirety of his his term, um, mm -hmm. and and in the end uh, they they became moot. So I think the the lesson that we have here is that the federal court system um, has tremendous potential to 
hold power to account, but it comes with a lot of limits as well. And uh, there are ways that um, administrations uh, or any defendants have of, of stalling things and, and making things take longer. And in this case, uh, Trump used those very effectively, and the Supreme Court was able to entirely dodge uh, all of the, the questions that could have been um, embarrassing for those justices to have to address. Yeah, I, I mean, this is what's just incredible about it. I mean, you know, when the Mueller report came out, he said, well, I I, uh, I can't bring charges because he's a sitting president. This is for impeachment. So then they impeached and they said, well, no, this is not an impeachable act. These are maybe criminal acts. So, you know, things were taken back to the courts. And then the courts said, well, you know, he's out of office now. It's moot. And they try to impeach him again. And they say that that's unconstitutional. I mean, when we hear the arguments that, you know, uh, no one in this country is above the law, even the president of the United States, it certainly suggests if you look at the last four years, that that is decidedly not the case. And in the emoluments, you know, case, I, I again, I'm not an attorney, but when I look at this and I think, well, how can this be moot if he got to, you know, he doesn't he gets to keep the money that he made potentially unconstitutionally. He still has that money. This is not moot. I, am I wrong to look at it that way? Uh, you're not wrong from, you know, the sort of standpoint of grand principle, from the, the standpoint of the way the courts look at it, um, they're saying, uh, you know, what would be the point of us issuing uh, an injunction telling him um, not to do this anymore? Um, and the uh, courts, especially the Supreme Court, are always happy to dodge a uh, difficult, um, problematic, or controversial, especially if it's a constitutional question, um, by relying on uh, some technical issue. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in this case, they uh, they managed to uh, they meaning the Department of Justice managed mm -hmm. to stall things long enough that the Supreme Court had had an easy out. And uh, unfortunately, it means that we never really got a, a ruling either from Congress or from the Supreme Court on uh, whether these types of payments are acceptable. So, for a future mm -hmm. president um, who might own businesses going in. They might look at what Trump did, and they might say, you know what, he got to keep running his businesses the entire four years without uh, having to give up a penny of income. I'm going to do the same thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I haven't heard uh, Joe Biden yet talk about, he's talked about a lot of good stuff, but uh, I, I sure would like to hear discussion of re reviewing the uh, Department of Justice's ridiculous Office of Legal Counsel memo saying that a, uh, a sitting president cannot be indicted for a crime. That seems absurd. And if that was changed, I think a lot of things would change. Uh, Ron Fine, it's completely unfair here because we haven't been able to talk about uh, on this show so much going on. We haven't been able to talk about much about all of these pardons that were done at the last minute by the president. We're sort of out of time here, so can't talk about it either. Uh, but the unfair part is I wanted to ask you very quickly if you know one way or another, I've heard some suggest, you know, I, I was shocked, frankly, that Trump did not at least attempt to pardon himself or his family or even his corrupt sidekick buddy, Rudy Giuliani. I've, I've heard some suggest there could be a secret pardon for any or all of those folks. Is a secret pardon actually a thing? And if so, would it have constitutional validity? Well, no one has done it before, uh, and no one has tested it before, but you've got to suspect that Trump wrote himself a pardon and has it in a safe, 
and he's holding on to it in case he's charged with a crime. And uh, if he is, then he'll pull it out. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. But I have a feeling that he, he wrote a pardon and is storing it somewhere. I have no proof, obviously, but mm-hmm. I have a feeling that he's, he's willing to roll the dice with that. I have that feeling, too. Uh, Ron Fine, always great speaking to you, my friend. Uh, Ron is the legal director at freespeechforpeople.org, a top-notch group uh, that I encourage you to support. You can find him on the Twitters at Ron Fine. You can find Free Speech for People on the Twitters at FSFP and, of course, at freespeechforpeople.org. Always great speaking with you, uh, my friend Ron. I suspect we'll have many reasons to do so in the uh, not-too-distant future. It's my pleasure, and I'll look forward to joining you again. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. And that's all for today's edition of Bradcast Recounted. Thanks to our guests, gerrymandering expert David Daly of fairvote.org and constitutional law expert Ron Fine of Free Speech for People. And of course, to you for spending part of your day or night with us. It is our privilege and honor. If you missed any portion of today's Bradcast or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And that service is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to stay completely independent on your public airwaves during these historic, unprecedented times. Now in our 17th year of muckraking, troublemaking, and fighting for free and fair elections, drop by to help us celebrate at bradblog.com slash donate. Follow and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. Drop us an email and tell us what you think at bradcast at bradblog.com. We'll be back soon. Until we meet again, I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. And as Brad likes to say, good luck, world. (laughs) 